Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino, and my producer is Michael Von Cannon. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Today's show takes Hemingway at his own premise. We ask our guest a very simple question. His choice for Hemingway's one true sentence and why, and then as Hemingway writes, go on from there. It's our privilege today to turn to a man who has written more than his share of true sentences, the great Russell Banks. Russell Banks is a prolific fiction and nonfiction writer, and among many, many other works, he's the author of the novels Continental Drift, Cloud Splitter, Affliction, The Sweet Hereafter, and I know this is controversial, but One True Podcast's personal favorite, Rule of the Bone. (laughs) And among his countless awards, Mr. Banks has been a Penn Faulkner finalist multiple times and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Continental Drift and Cloud Splitter. We are so privileged to welcome Russell Banks to One True Podcast. Welcome, Russell. Well, thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. So what is your One True Sentence from Hemingway's work, and why? Well, it's, it's, it's uh, also uh, from A Movable Feast. Um, and uh, I can say I've read that book at least three times um, at different moments in my life, different uh, times while I've ever read it when it was first published in 1964. And I was 24 years old. I read it again, probably in my middle 40s. And I read it again, um, just about a month ago. Um, and it's a different book each time. And it's a better book each time. It's a kinder, more um, uh, gentle and um, forgiving book, and, and a more guilt ridden book, uh, as I've gotten older, I think. Anyhow, the sentence comes from that, and it's a beautiful sentence to me. Uh, I don't know how it would strike someone else. Um, Here it is. The leaves lay sodden in the rain, and the wind drove the rain against the big green autobus at the terminal, and the Café des Amateurs was crowded, and the windows misted over from the heat and the smoke inside. It's it's just a fabulous oh. tracking shot, you know. It's a it's like a Scorsese tracking shot where it starts <laughs> in the it starts in the window of that of that a little uh, flat over the mill of uh, the sawmill where the leaves you feel he's looking out the window. The leaves lay sodden in the rain, and the wind drove the rain. He moves outside the window against the big green autobus down below on the street at the terminal. And we've moved down the street a little ways. And the Café des Amateurs, we've moved down to the café, but we're still outside. But then we move inside. It was crowded. And then we see the windows misted over from inside, from the heat and the smoke inside. I mean, it's, it's just a fabulous physical sentence that follows the the eye. Um yeah. And and also follows the sequence of memory. He retraces his steps essentially, from that little flat down to the street, down the street, past the autobus and the terminal and into uh, into the, the uh, cafe. 
And he uses the leaves as a connection yeah. from the previous sentence to the sentence that you just read. Right. And then, and then it, so we, we continue this, this movement. Uh, Russell, what strikes me about the sentence, even just listening to you read it, is that we have the word and mm-hmm. uh, over and over, and mm-hmm. we don't have any punctuation. Right, right. There's no commas, nothing in there separating. It's just one thing leads to another directly and is, is absorbed by the other as a result of there being no commas and, and, uh, and just linked by and. Uh, and so it becomes a, a coherent and, and inclusive um, um, experience. I mean, you, you simultaneously experience uh, everything going on uh, in, uh, in that world, that moment in that world. No, it's a brilliant, uh, brilliant sentence. I mean, there are, you know, with Hemingway pulling one sentence out of uh, the hundreds of thousands of sentences, it's really uh, of true sentences as well, is, is impossible. But that one struck me, and I, and I, and I can't say um, that it's, you know, superior in, in, in one way or the other, but for me personally, it's instructive. And, uh, and that, that his best sentences are, that's one reason why we, so many writers imitate him for so long and have to learn how not to imitate him because they're so instructive. Let me ask you one more question about this sentence, and then maybe we can we can broaden out. So the the last phrase, so the windows misted over from the heat and the smoke inside. And so I'm not sure whether to read that sentence, the heat and the smoke inside, or if the smoke inside is about to, if he's about to tell us something about the smoke inside, or he just wants to, to mention with mention that it's kind of a, it, the sentence ends after the momentum that has gathered from the sense it's a little bit ambiguous. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, it is. Although I do think it's, it's meant to be taken uh, with the heat as causing the mist um, because it, 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 the fact that he, that he adds it on, emphasizes and makes and embodies the the uh, the crowdedness of it uh right you, you can't imagine that room now without imagining a crowd of people smoking standing close to one another the heat off their bodies and uh off the smoke off their cigarettes and um misting the windows back after this This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I read it cover to cover every time we see it. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org slash journals. You mentioned that you you picked this sentence, although you could have picked hundreds of, hundreds yeah. of others. That's part. Of, that's something that's sort of inherent in the one true sentence challenge. Mm. Uh, what do you think he's getting at by saying, "I tried to write one true sentence"? Does that have any applicability to you as a writer? That that ethos. Yes, it does. I mean, after all, if you write one sentence that's true, you've eliminated at least half of the untold numbers of alternatives where you could go. And writing fiction is a way of, of eliminating alternatives, like on a tree, um, going uh, only going from the topmost branch down to the root. 
and until uh, you get to the end where you've only got two alternatives uh, uh, available to you. Either he lives or he dies, or she lives or she dies, or they get married or they part from one another, and so forth. Um, but at the beginning, you've got all those uh, millions of alternatives. So you write one sentence, and it creates the next one. And that the two together then create the third sentence. Uh, and I think that's what he's pointing at. Um, and and I, that's true. And a, a lot of writers um, follow that. None probably quite as as uh, assiduously as he. Uh, although I'm thinking of Michael Andachi uh, once told me that he he works that way. He writes one sentence and he won't write the next sentence until he's satisfied with that sentence. I think most of us plunge ahead uh, <laughs> and and then go back and fix it later. But uh, Andachi is uh, unusual that way, I think. But I think Hemingway worked that way. Uh, you've looked at his manuscripts, I'm sure, and, and you've seen there's a surprising, uh, uh, surprisingly few um, rewrites. I mean, he claimed to rewrite a lot, but I, I wonder exactly how much he did. Some t- I think it would depend on the on the novel and the phase of his yeah. career. He was at. How about yeah. your manuscripts? Are they heavily edited? Yes. Uh, because I need, I'm one of those who has to plunge ahead uh, to find out what I'm writing about and and um, what what is the mystery I'm trying to unravel. I can't know it until I get there, and and so though I just I just plunge ahead and then go back and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. I don't get it right the first time or the second or the third or fourth. Um, and uh, I think I, I'm more conventional in that sense. Uh, most of us um, don't get it until the book is done and then we go back and redo it and then go back and redo it again and redo it. writing it from in a sense from the, from the end to the front. You mentioned Russell reading a movable feast when it was first published posthumously in 1964. Uh, do you remember as a young writer, do you remember Hemingway as a, as a figure who was alive was his suicide in the news? Oh, yeah. and you were, you were conscious of that maybe you can talk a little bit about his presence to you as a young writer yourself. Oh, it's enormous. I mean, he, he was, he was a figure uh, through which one tried to define and, and imagine oneself uh, um, as a, I was, I started writing when I was about 18 seriously. And then uh, um, I was fully conscious of, of him. I was born in 1940. So uh I, he was very alive and very much a figure, um, both as a you know a celebrity of a certain type, but but as a as a literary model, and I I um, went off to uh, Florida, um, dropped out at uh, the age of eighteen, and headed south, and um, ended up out there on the Keys in 1961, actually. Um, and he wasn't living in Key West. I was, I ended up in Key West finally. Um, he was across the, the straits in, in Cuba then. Um, and so I was very conscious of him as a kind of ghostly presence, um, in my life, uh, which was at that time very attached to, and it continues to be very attached to South Florida, the Keys, the Caribbean, uh, and, and so on. Since I've been, been to Cuba and visited the Finca and um, spent uh, some time down there uh, in following Hemingway's tracks, and there are very few writers one does that uh, for. Uh, it's a it's an homage, and uh, and I certainly uh, 
think that he imprinted so deeply on me that uh, that many years later, even uh, as recently as two years ago, I, I went uh, back to Cuba and and um, and went out to the house and and um, walked around. Uh, we were able to. I was with my publisher Dan Halpern, and uh, he and I were uh, allowed to go into the house and go through the house, and it really was uh, a bit of a shrine. I must confess uh, to me. So he was that important. So besides the geographical connection, what made you gravitate towards him? Well, you know, the, simply the prose. Uh, the short stories more than the novels. Um, I wanted to write short stories and still do uh, that had the kind of impact um, that his had on me. Um, they... Um, they clarified my mind and they clarified my morality in a way that no other writer did. Um, the other writer of, of that stature and, and of that uh, presence really uh, at that time and, and still to some degree for me uh, was Faulkner. And, um, and it's similar too. Um, it, it, they, they couldn't be less alike as writers, um, but they reading them as a young man, especially, but still, even today, I've been rereading Faulkner lately. They clarify your mind um, in a way that um, that no other writers do, at least not for me. Maybe the great Russians. That's about it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, when when uh, you were choosing out this sentence, and I know that when you uh, talked about Hemingway admiringly in, in the past, you've mentioned. Hemingway's ability to witness or his eye, mm-hmm. his observational mm-hmm. That's right. journalistic skill. I know the sentence uh, is an example of that. So perhaps mm-hmm. you can talk a little bit about that, both with the sentence and maybe Hemingway in, in general. Yeah, Hemingway was a writer, and, and it's interesting to read him side by side with Faulkner because Faulkner, uh, the visual details don't exist. There are details abundantly, but uh, but not visual. You don't see what Faulkner is describing. Uh, you may hear it and you, you react to the language, uh, but you don't see it. With Hemingway, you see everything. Uh, I first clarified that for myself, um, not through Hemingway, but really through, through, um, Conrad. Uh, Conrad said, above all else, I want my reader to see. And he meant, not understand, but to visualize, to be able to visualize. And I, and I began to realize early on that, yes, that's, that's key. That's absolutely central. Um, for me as a writer, if I can't see it myself, how can I expect my reader to see it? And, and then for me as a reader, I need and want to see it. Um, and, um, and Hemingway makes that easy. I mean, just that sentence that, that I read at the start here. Um, you see that you because he saw it as he wrote, um, and um, and and that's why the first thing I when I read it and was thinking about it, the first thing I thought, gee, it's like a Scorsese tracking shot. It's cinematic, you know, in that sense. You see it. It's a very important. As you remember in *Immovable Feast*, when Hemingway talks about the one true sentence, he mm-hmm. says, "Oh, it was easy because there was always one thing that I had seen." That I could, yeah. I could do it. So that's to, in that respect, uh, reporting on something that you've seen is grounded in reality, right? It's grounded in an observational authenticity. Is that how, is, is that something that you connect with, 
um, or can it be true in the imagination? Yeah, I'm reluctant to, to, to argue that it has to be um, literally seen in, in reality or, you know, uh, experienced reality. Um, I, I don't think that's necessary. Uh, some writers, it might be the case it's necessary for them because their visual imagination is, is not easily stimulated, let's say. Uh, in my own case, I know that um, that's uh, that I don't feel that I depend upon reality, vis- visible reality, in order to write a sentence that has some truth to it. Um, but uh, but as soon as I start writing, I start visualizing. Yeah, and I think I think I think that was true for Hemingway too. I mean, um, he was he was not necessarily reporting uh, literally everything that he uh, set down in fiction. He was careful to say at the beginning of, of a movable feast that this is really should be considered a work of fiction, and uh, and I think that that's. Uh, when he was remembering the leaves that lay sodden in the rain and so forth down there, writing about it uh, 40 years later um, or more, um, that was something he was imagining. His memory, memory is an act of the imagination. And, um, and, and so he was calling that up and, and um, in his imagination, retracing his steps. Uh, I've just uh, finished thinking about uh, very seriously and and, uh, and uh, over a long period of time about memory uh, in a novel that's about to come out actually in a few weeks, um, and uh, and I realize how much memory is is an act of the imagination. Um, and uh, Hemingway, yes, certainly depended upon memory in almost all his work, um, at least to, for the part of it that initiated the story or the novel uh, and so on. But, yeah. but he was, but memories that act to the imagination, as I said. That's a well, Russell. That's a great point. When you're in the sentence that you read, when he's saying the wind drove the rain against the big green autobus, mm-hmm. you know, the notion that he would remember the rain yeah. against that particular green bus from you right. know de- decades right. ago, it's kind of irrelevant, right? right? And and he's not writing this in Paris looking out the window. He's writing this decades later uh, from from America, right? And and then in a movable feast, he's saying. Uh, he's like, you can write about Michigan in Paris and, you know, the, uh, and so do you find that, is that, is that similar with, with your respect? Cause you're, you set your, your novels, you know, all, all over. Um, can you write about one place while you're in the other, as long as you just investigate the imagination? Yes, uh, definitely. Uh, I do that all the time. I mean, I, I, I live in two zones really up near the Canadian border, uh, uh, half the year and, and, uh, on the edge of the sea, uh, edge of, of the, um, um, the Gulf of Mexico, um, the other half of the year. And, uh, and I write about both areas regardless of where I am. Um, and also other parts of the world as well, uh, West Africa or, um, uh, other parts of the country and, and other periods of time. Um, what I have done in the past, and I and I and I know Hemingway did this too, uh, as any serious writer would, is that I have to um, I have to do research nonetheless. And it's but the reason I, one reason I'm doing that research is so that I can stimulate my imagination and engage that visualization uh, sufficiently to to be 
able to see on the page what it is that uh, that I'm writing about. So um, uh, I finished a novel this year um, that is set largely in um, in the uh, northern part of the Everglades um, in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, now I've been out into the Everglades many, many times, and but in modern time, in contemporary time, what was it like uh, in the late 1900s, early uh, uh, 20s? And uh, I have to do some research in order to visualize that. Uh, I'd have to uh, get photographs, read books, and even travel down and try to see it through a different lens, see what it was like 100 years ago. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about how memory factors into the new novel? Um, you're saying you've been reading Faulkner, and I always remember Faulkner's line, memory oh, yeah. believes before knowing remembers. Right. That's subjectivity of human experience. So what, right. what's the connection for you about well, memory? That's a very apt uh, quote, actually, for the novel. The novel is called Foregone, and it's an account um, uh, about... Uh, of a man who is dying of cancer, a man in his late 70s, um, a Canadian-American who went to Canada during the uh, Vietnam War in order to avoid the draft and stayed there and became established as a well-known documentary filmmaker. And he's being filmed as he's dying uh, by um, uh, ex-students uh, who are want to do the final interview. And so it's sort of crap's last tape in a way. And, yeah, right, and, right. And, and he's telling the story of his past, the truth of his past. And he's been much mythologized. So he's demythologizing himself, essentially. And uh, in order to do that, he has to go back in memory and, and time uh, and to his youth and, and to his childhood and to the years of uh, that uh, followed when he first came to Canada. And they're very different than what uh, he has been uh, known for. Um, but gradually he becomes increasingly unable to make what he is remembering known to the people who are filming him. Uh, and as partly due to illness, medication, language breakdown, confabulation, what happens to a person as they approach death. So it's a, it's a bit of a grim story, I suppose, but it's very much involved with the, uh, the, uh, the power and the fragility of memory. Russell Banks, could you please read your one true sentence? Okay. The leaves lay sodden in the rain, and the wind drove the rain against the big green autobus at the terminal, and the Café des Amateurs was crowded, and the windows misted over from the heat and the smoke inside. What a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Russell. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you, Mark. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on HemingwaySociety.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at OneTruePod. That's the number, OneTruePod. Or email us at one truepod at gmail.com. Our show is supported by the Hemingway Society, the English Department of the University of Evansville, and Florida Gulf Coast University. 
Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. Oh,